Um, hi, this is Jessa Reed. You are listening to Soberish, and uh, this is our first episode. I'm here with Brian, who you can't hear. I just found out that they weren't going to be able to hear you. I was going to have you like awkwardly say things, but um, I was going to call you Young Brian. Anyway, um, this first episode I'm going to do by myself, I guess. I'm going to tell a little bit of my story and uh, what made me decide to do this podcast. Uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the piss drinking portion of my story, but I have been hesitant for a long time to talk about my experience with addiction because I felt like I shouldn't be in the conversation. I felt like I didn't fit the narrative of addiction and like abstinence recovery. And so I felt like it just wasn't productive for me to talk about it. And I did an episode on my other podcast, Mormon and the Meth Head, called Not an Addict, and I was so hesitant to put it out and then got a lot of response from people who have a similar story and were glad to hear someone telling this story. And I have a lot of thoughts about things related to addiction and recovery that I would love to share and that I would love to talk about. And so that's what this podcast is going to be. I know a lot of phenomenal people who have struggled with addiction in their lives, who are children of addicts, and I want to have a place for them to tell their story. I want to destigmatize addiction a little bit. I feel like that's kind of what I was trying to do when I picked meth pee of all of the stories to tell was I like to laugh at sad things like that's the kind of comedy I like to do. And so this podcast is going to be dark for sure. It's going to be funny. It's going to be raw and candid. And uh, like I said, I have some phenomenal people already lined up to do interviews, and I'm excited to do those. But tonight, I just wanted to tell my story and kind of what brought me to the place of wanting to do this podcast. So I grew up the child of addicts. My parents were addicts. My dad was a highly functioning alcoholic Uh, His addiction really only affected the way that he felt about himself, I would say, because when he tells it, it's uh, very heavy and dark for him. But as his child, I didn't feel a lot of the effects of his addiction. My mother, on the other hand, was an active meth addict. It was like crank. They didn't have meth back then, but I definitely felt the effects of her addiction. And I didn't know as a child, I didn't know that what I was experiencing was the effects of an active drug addict. What I thought was that my mother didn't want me and didn't love me. As a result of her addiction, a lot of things slipped through the cracks. I ended up getting molested by my best friend's dad, which I'm sure we will get into at some point on this podcast. Um, I grew up feeling unwanted and unloved. And I think I really escaped into a world in my imagination. And I feel like the reason that I had to get addicted to drugs was because otherwise I would have been one of these people that spent the entire rest of their lives 
trying to reconcile their childhood. So I started drinking and smoking pot, probably like 14, 15, which is pretty standard, I think. Uh, nothing too crazy. I dropped out of high school. I really don't like being told what to do. So I got out of high school as quick as possible, got my GED at 16, ended up doing like a, a little uh, stint in Christianity when I got in trouble with the law and had to live with my grandmother. She took me to church where I got real into Jesus for a minute and then I got real into fucking the pastor's son, which kind of overshadowed the Jesus piece. And I ended up pregnant and we got married. And so now I'm a 16 year old wife, a 17 year old mother doing just like born again Christian shit for a few years. I left that because I was disillusioned. I would say if I had to put a title on what drove me for most of my life, I would say it was disillusionment. I felt disillusioned with the version of reality that I was presented, where I see a lot of people talk about escaping pain. And I don't relate to that. I feel like I've always been someone that kind of goes into the pain, not seeks out the pain, but just goes into it and rides that wave. I never related to like on TV shows or movies where people are like drinking because they're sad or whatever. I never got that. I'm like, yeah, fucking bring it. But I did feel like I lived on the Truman Show. From the time I was a little kid, I felt like there's more than this, right? There has to be more than this. And in the 90s and the early aughts, when this was all taking place, it was really kind of just this nine to five, do whatever it takes to survive American dream. But like the American dream was garbage. I know the millennials didn't get to experience it. So you think you got fucked over by the crash and everything, but trust me, it was lame. It was like nothing. It was lame. You wouldn't have liked it anyway. It was a rat race. It was garbage. So the boomers didn't take anything you wanted. Religion was still very dominant, like this puritanical, idea of obeying and women should be submissive and stuff. All this stuff still permeated through society way stronger than it does now. And it just felt like bullshit to me. It just felt like I was living in a TV show where nobody knew they were on a TV show and it was frustrating. And what drugs offered was an ability to escape that in a way that I can't really articulate. It just felt, it made the edges sharper so that it, it felt like a confirmation that it wasn't real. And I did coke for a little bit when I first left Christianity. And then after a few months of like spending all my money in one weekend, I was like, yeah, fuck coke. And then I drank a lot. I'm like 20, 21 years old. And I drank quite a bit. Uh, my marriage fell apart probably at the beginning, but we separated when I was 21. I started doing stand-up and I'm just on the road and I'm drunk. I'm very drunk, but I'm 21. And so for a long time, I thought like, oh yeah, I was an alcoholic, but I think I was just a 21-year-old doing 21-year-old shit. They gave you free drinks forever. Just now you get two drink tickets because they realized that you can't trust comedians with like endless access to the bar. But they 
would just give you free drinks. And I would, I was on the road like three months out of, or three weeks out of the month because I was like slutty and had a car. And so the headliners would all bring me with them. And then just drinks. I think I had my first joke. My first joke in my set was about it being my birthday. And then when people would cheer, I would be like, and I drink vodka crayon. And then they would send up drinks. And there was just so much vodka crayon. And I got cut off multiple times, like multiple times. They're like, you cannot have any more drinks. There was one point where the guy who booked these one-nighters followed me around to make sure I didn't get drunk before I went on stage, which is like, I was just drinking in the bathroom because I'm not getting on fucking stage. Like, I would not get on stage if I wasn't drunk. I didn't think I could do stand-up without being drunk. And so when I wasn't on stage, I remember being in hotel rooms and watching this show. Brian, you're probably too young. But do you remember VH1 had a show called Behind the Music? Yeah. Okay. Behind the Music had the same story every single time. It was just different stars, which was basically like, here was this young person. They were hot. They were talented. They got a deal. They shit the deal away for drugs and alcohol. Like that was, that was behind the music was just how to shit your life away. And I remember just being like, I'm going to fucking kill that part. Like I just knew that that was my destiny. Only I'm so efficient that I got straight to that part without ever getting signed or getting any uh, modicum of success. Is modicum a word? Modicum? <laughs> There'll be a lot of that on this podcast and everywhere I go. Anyway, without any tiny bit of success, I asked a bartender after a show for a line of white. And I asked him for a line of white because... On the run before that, I got pulled over by the cops at 10 o'clock the next morning after driving and had to do a field sobriety test. And anyone that knows me knows that now, 15 years, uh, no drinking, I still cannot pass a field sobriety test because I can't walk in a straight line or look at an object, apparently, without my eyes crossing. But I was definitely still drunk at 10 o'clock the next morning, and someone told me, why don't you just do a bump of Coke after you've been drinking and it'll sober you up like you won't, which is a nice life hack, uh, if I do say so myself, because I was 21. So I'd already finished my Coke phase. That was way in the rear view. And so I was just doing a bump of Coke after a long night of drinking. And then it was just a reset button. And you're sober enough to go to sleep. No hangover. It was awesome. Anyway, I asked these bartenders in Montana for a line of white. And I knew it wasn't white. I did know that. It was like gray or like yellow. And I should have asked some questions. I don't think I wanted the answer to questions. I think I was already thirsty for some type of self-destruction just for entertainment's sake. I loved this identity of being this reckless young a woman that just throws caution to the wind. You know, I'd been like a housewife for the last few years. And so anyway, I do the line. I do way more than I think I was supposed to. I think I did all of our lines because it was kind of in one pile. And then I was way high, like way, way high. And I spent all the money that I made on prepaid phone cards and I was just like calling everyone back home. I don't think I slept for the rest of that tour. And I 
was so pro-meth after that. Like, I was so excited about meth because this was the moment that I felt like... Have you ever done, like, psychedelics? Do you do psychedelics? No, he doesn't do psychedelics. All right. Well, if you've ever done, like, mushrooms or acid and everything looks like a TV set, like, sometimes you do it and you're like, oh, my God, this is so obviously a movie. And I think that that's part of what it was. I didn't really have an explanation for my disillusionment yet. I felt hopeless, sad. I guess now they would call it like nihilistic. I think, you know, nothing is real. I knew that back before that was something that people say. Now everyone says it. And I think that's the sensation that I had. Like, nothing's real. What the fuck is the point? But I had this hope that something cooler than this, magic exists, something supernatural exists, is kind of how I felt. And I felt like I could tap into it if I just never slept or ate again. So I decided to commit my life to meth. I got back to Portland and I just started tweaking. I knew where to get it because I already hung out in like after hours clubs or whatever. And so I knew who the tweakers were. And I knew what that lifestyle did to kids. And I already had all this guilt about not being a good mom to my daughter. And uh, I don't think I was capable of love. I didn't love myself. I didn't understand myself. And so my relationship with my daughter was just kind of like a alien doing an impression of being a mom. And I felt very guilty about it. And so this was a great justification to save her from me. And I gave her to my sister-in-law, who is a saint and a mother that I constantly envied and wished I could be like. And then I just kind of went off to the races. I left society. My family thought I was dead for years. I was just gone. And I did meth and I loved it. I loved it. Horrible things happened. Violent things happened. I I was intermittently homeless. I lost all my teeth. I lost my eyes staring at the sun. And I was okay with it because it was all my choice. I like how I just gloss over that. Like there's so much glossing going to happen in this episode. We'll get into all of the weird shit in future episodes as we go. But anyway, yeah, teeth, eyes, all of it. Um, Don't stare at the sun. That's one thing I have learned. That's one of my conspiracy theories that I have personally debunked for you. Deaf don't look at the sun if you care about your macula. Anyway, so I do meth for like five and a half years. And a year in, I have a near-death experience. I don't know how I died. I think it could have been GHB, although I was drinking GHB out of the bottle like it was going out of style, and I don't remember doing GHB that night. Someone could have slipped it to me, but would have had to have been a lot. Uh, Also, there was uh, someone was trying to kill me. Could have been that. But anyway, I die. I piss myself in a dance club. I foam at the mouth, and I have this near-death experience. And in this near-death experience, I wake up, I'm inside this blue vibrating ball of light. Now, when this near-death experience happens, I believe myself to be a backslidden Christian and that I have just abandoned God because I wanted to sin. And then I'm in this vibrating blue ball of light, and all of a sudden I understand words like energy, vibration, frequency. They all make sense. And I'm in the blue ball, I don't have a body, 
but I'm still myself, but I'm also part of this blue ball. And in this moment, I understand everything. I understand that I am God. Collectively, we are all God and that we are all one and all this shit. This is all fucking everyone has heard this shit now, but I never heard anything like this at this point in my life. And so the blue ball of light tells me a bunch of shit about reality being a video game. I come back and I'm just changed. Everything's different. And for the rest of the time that I'm doing drugs, I am in some weird, maybe schizophrenic state, maybe enlightened state. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. But where I am getting confirmation that reality is not what everyone thinks it is. And I'm being taught by aliens in my dreams. And this is all like probably the meth. Anyway, during this process, the aliens are also helping me heal my trauma. And I am like learning these insane lessons. And this is not the experience of anyone else who's ever done meth. So I am absolutely not recommending that you do meth. This, I believe was a key for me because my mom was a meth addict. And I never would have gotten over my childhood if I didn't go stand in her shoes. And I remember the day that it clicked, the day that I realized that I wasn't unwanted or unloved and that my mom didn't hate me, that she was just fucking high. A friend of mine was crying that she was a bad mom because she was, a you know, being a bad mom. And I was like, you're not a bad mom, though. You're just tweaking like you're just high. And it clicked in that moment. And I realized why I had to come walk in these shoes, because otherwise I would have believed all of these things. And when you believe that you weren't wanted by your parents, I mean, that still shits on my life. I'm still, I'm 42 years old. I'm still figuring that out. I'm seeing that ripple effect through my relationships. And I think this is a, this is a big part of what we consider to be the disease of addiction as well. And we'll get all into trauma stuff too, moving forward. But this moment, just a single moment where I realized that so much of what I perceived to be my mom hating me was just she was high and i realized like why i had to come here why i had to come to this place to learn these lessons i also needed to leave society because i just didn't resonate with society and when you leave society for a few years also i don't recommend taking this path it worked out really good for me and nobody else but for me leaving society for six years was transformative because I've really never come back to society. I live in society, but I do whatever makes sense for me. And I believe whatever makes sense for me. And I don't feel herded in by the pressure of what everyone's going to think. Anyway, so I do drugs for five years, four years after that. I have this very spiritual kind of awakening experience. And then shit gets bad. Like I'm just in with bad people. I finally found like the dark pocket of the meth world because before that I was in, I was sheltered and kind of cushioned in this group of people who all started doing meth around the same time and were kind of from just, uh, 
we were just kind of innocent compared to the darker, more violent groups. And I kind of ended up in the darker, more violent area and realized like, oh, I'm actually in danger. And I was in a relationship that was bad. I was in multiple domestically violent relationships, but I chalked a lot of that up to this is the lifestyle that I've chosen. But it had finally gotten to the point where I was like, oh, I might actually get killed here. And I also felt it winding up I guess I think it was about six months before I quit shooting up. I had to shoot up in my neck because I didn't have veins. Immediately, I didn't have veins when I started shooting up. And it's funny because it's all these things I thought I would never do. Like when I first started, I snorted it and I was like, I'll never smoke it because I don't like the way that people who smoke it act. And then you end up at a party and the guy who has the bag will only give you some if you smoke it. And so then you smoke it and then you get a taste of that high and now you're addicted to that high. And then you're like, okay, well, at least I don't shoot it up. I'll never shoot it up. And then one day your boyfriend starts shooting up and then he is shooting up with some chick and you're jealous of the chick and you don't want uh, her to be moving in on your man. So you need to be able to share this experience with him. So you're like, oh, hey, I want to shoot up too. Like, it's crazy how it happens. I learned while on meth to never say I would never because you fucking will. You definitely will. You're just like challenging the universe to bring a reason. So I'm shooting up and I can't like, you can only shoot up in your neck. Like I can only shoot up in my neck. And then like someone else has to do that. And a lot of people thought that they could do that, but they were bad at it. And so there were a lot of mishaps with it. And I just got sick of it after a while. The the high was cool and clean and you got to rush and stuff. But then there just came a point where I was like, this is like diminishing returns. So I end up getting high 30% of the time and the rest of the time it's a waste. And so I stopped shooting up in I think August of 2004. And then I just kind of started to come down. Like I was getting less and less high. And then I, the drinking pee was right at the end. Like drinking pee was something I figured out. I had been trying to make meth out of pee for like 18 months but I had never successfully done it because I dropped out of high school. So I have like a, a like a earth science, I think was the last, like I definitely not chemistry. I definitely never learned chemistry. And so there was nothing on the internet about how to, how to like titrate your urine. So I had been trying to make meth out of pee for a while. Like I had definitely had a lot of pee stored and stuff at uh, a different boyfriend's house. But then we had broken up. I quit shooting up and I'm just kind of like eating it or whatever. I realized one day I should drink it. I do have the Matrix experience, but I was already having a ton of crazy alien experiences before that. And then that goes on for a couple months. But that high was very different. And at some point I decide that I'm going to like steal someone's identity to get teeth made. And I've I've reconnected with my mom because I've come down quite a bit and I float that idea past her and she's like, uh, I'm going to talk to your dad. And I hadn't seen my dad since I started getting high. And my dad says, fucking don't steal anyone's identity, you idiot. I will get you dentures. Like I'll pay for everything. We'll get you the top ones. You got to come visit me and then we'll get you the bottom ones. So I get the top ones and then I have to go visit him. I go to visit him for Christmas and I get 
to the airport. I missed my flight because I had to have a fake ID made of my real information. Like I hadn't had an ID. I hadn't come up for fucking oxygen in five years. I had no. So I like I knew my license number, but now I have a fake ID with my real information on it. Thank God this is before the blue light thing. Also, there was like a bad line printed through it. I don't know how I got away with this. But while I'm standing in line with this janky ass ID, I realize that I have a whole meth pipe, a whole dirty ass uh, meth pipe sticking out of my bra just because like I haven't even gone in public. Like I don't even go in fucking public. I don't know how to conduct myself. I have a messy blackened meth pipe sticking out of my bra. And so I slide my hand. This is apparently... How you ditch a meth pipe into a trash can apparently looks like how you would ditch a bomb into a trash can, I think, because when I think back at how, like, overly shady I made it, I just also I'm a 30-year-old with pigtails. I think I'm, like, 28, 29. I have pigtails in my hair, no teeth. I slide the pipe into my sleeve and then just put, like, my whole arm into the trash can and dump the pipe. And then I check in for my flight that uh, they had to rebook me on a flight. I drop my suitcases off and I turn around and look and they have like security surrounding this trash can. How I didn't get stopped, I have no idea. I run into the bathroom. I like put my coat in my bag. I change, like pull up my hair different, whatever. And I walk out. I guess by then they were like, oh, it's just a tweaker and they didn't come after me. I don't know how I got away with fucking any of this. I go on my flight. I have an eight-hour layover. Oh, I eat all my drugs. That's the point of that story. I eat all my drugs. I end up in Delaware with no drugs for two weeks. I have to visit my dad. And up until this point, I felt like all of this spiritual awakening, all of this like uh, evolution that I've taken, I felt smart for the first time in my life. I felt like meth gave me all these things, right? It made me smart. It made me interesting. It made me funny. And I didn't think I was any of these things without drugs. And then I did sleep a lot. I did eat a lot. I did bust out of those pants within like three days. But I was me. I was still me. I didn't need the drugs. And I remember starting things really starting to unravel, like my paradigm kind of starting to come undone because I was never going to stop doing drugs. People would talk about getting clean. People would like talk about how great their life was before drugs. Like everyone on drugs was like, I, they hated it. They wanted to stop. They would go to like detox and shit. And I was like, fucking give me your drugs. You're wasting them. Like I don't ever want to get clean. If I wanted to get clean, I'd go get fucking clean. Like I'm here for the meth. Like the meth is great. And for the first time I was thinking thoughts about, could I live a normal life? Like, could I take these things I've learned and live a normal life like this and then I would immediately shut it down like no this is probably just because I'm at my parents house and I'm having some kind of like pink cloud experience because I haven't seen them in so long and I was circling the mailbox waiting for my boyfriend to send me the drugs that I western unioned him money for but um my dad like gave me money to get my sister's presents as soon as I got there. So for Christmas, my sisters got me sending money to my drug dealer boyfriend. <laughs> and I didn't get any fucking drugs. Anyway, so my dad's in recovery at this point. My dad's like seven years clean at this point, I think. And on the last night of the trip, he was so smart to have not mentioned 
it at all. Like no reference to the elephant in the room. They did ask like a couple times, like, how do you survive? And I just had this crazy luck the whole time I was on drugs. Like people just gave me houses and I had cars, access to cars or whatever, just the whole time. But I, uh, I finally say on the last night, like, I don't, I don't think I've been this sober in five years. And I think I'm okay. Like I, I'm, I'm happier than I thought I would be. I didn't mean to be sober, but I'm okay. And my dad got a little bit excited talking to me about his experience, and I got very defensive. Like, okay, I, well, I don't want to commit to anything. Like, I'm not going to get clean. I like my life the way it is, but I just thought it was a, you know, I should address it. And then he just shut up. He stopped talking about it. And then took me to the airport the next day. And when he took me to the airport, he used the best possible word you could use with me. And that was stale. He said, if you get home and you find that things are a little stale, just know that you can always come back here. And for me, if you want to talk me out of something, you can't talk about how bad or painful or whatever, because I believe, like, I just want to take experience. I just want to have life experience, but I want it to be new. I don't want to circle around a track that I've been around a million times. Like, this is how I ended up in this life experience was because the idea of the life in, say, Delaware, where I partially grew up, is these people all went to school through grade school, junior high, high school, and then they get married to their high school sweetheart, and then one of them joins the union, and then they work that job, and they buy a house, and maybe they trade it in on one more house, and like they have the same friends they've been partying with since they were kids, and they just do this, and they love it, but it's a nightmare to me. It's a nightmare. Like I don't want to do the same thing year after year after year, and... I realized that I turned to partying and drugs to escape that, but now I was doing that with drugs. Like my life was stale. I was running around the same track. It had a a little bit different settings because people would go in and out of prison and, you know, you'd end up in different houses and different cars and sleeping on different kitchen floors. But like it was stale. It was fucking stale. And so I get back. And he had no idea when he said it because I just like okie doked him or whatever. But he had no idea what a wedge he put in between me and that lifestyle in that moment. Because that is such that is such the perfect seed to plant for me. I'm still so impressed that he picked that word. So I get home and uh, my boyfriend has robbed my roommate. So now I have to live with him which is stale because I've already fucking done that. And he's a dick. I don't want to live with him. Um, he left a camera, a digital camera, which had pictures of him fucking my arch nemesis the whole time I was gone. Also stale. Also been around that street a few times. And then it's just like me putting up with it because he has the bag and I got to put up with it because he has the bag. And this is also fucking stale. And our relationship goes to shit fast. I think this whole thing took less than a couple weeks. And, uh, I had one more piece of violence visited on me and there just came a point where I was like, I'm never getting punched in the head again. I'm never fucking doing this again. I'm worth more than this. I am going to find a way to get meth sent to Delaware and I'm just going to do meth in Delaware. Because at this point I'm like, well, the meth isn't stale. Like the meth is fine. It's Portland people that are stale, right? So I arrange a pipeline to get me meth to Delaware. I get my bottom teeth put in. I, uh get high one last time, and then I get on the airplane. And 
At this point, I'm still planning on doing math when I get to Delaware. And then on the airplane, this is different than Math P, by the way, because I tried the real ending, uh, which I think is so much funnier, a million times, and it just wouldn't work. So I had to do a weird uh, condensed ending. But what actually happened, well, I pissed in my sister's toothbrush holder. If you don't know what I'm talking about, this is a very strange aside. I pissed in my sister's toothbrush holder, got away with it, and then got clean a couple days later and had to call her and be like, hey, this is awkward. I need to make amends. I'm going to need you to stop using your toothbrush holder. It's so much worse that she used it afterwards. Anyway, um, I'm on the airplane, and on the airplane, I'm just thinking about how my boyfriend didn't send me the meth when I sent him money over Christmas time, and how tweakers are like basically incapable of making it to a post office within business hours. Like that's something that meth does is just makes it fucking impossible to accomplish anything. And I thought, oh, they're gonna, even with the best intentions, they're definitely just gonna do the meth and rip me off. And it's just gonna be frustrating. I'm just gonna be sitting around waiting for meth for what? like to get high by myself in Delaware because they didn't have meth in Delaware yet, which is probably best. And I just decided in that moment, I guess I'm not going to do meth anymore. And that was it. It was it was just like that. I was like, ah, fuck it. This is going to be a pain in the ass. Who cares? So like I had been doing methamphetamines every single day for years, five and a half years. It was my entire life. And then I quit. That was it. I was just like, ah, pros, cons. There's more pros. Fuck it. Right. I'll just go get a fresh start. And I get to Delaware and, you know, my family's so happy. My dad's so happy. He thought I was dead. He has these heartbreaking stories about like Christmas time, just like trying to imagine where I'm at and imagining me under a bridge or waiting for the phone call when he when they found my body. And uh, it was this euphoric time to be home. And it was, I didn't go to rehab because I had this unique experience where I didn't need to go to rehab. I'm relatively pro get the fuck away from whatever you've been doing. But because I was able to just like fly 3000 miles and live in the house of a recovering addict who just like taught me everything there. And, you know, there were no people, places and things. There were no old habits, no old friends to visit. But I got to sleep it off. You sleep for a lot. You sleep for a lot while your chemicals like even out. It's a lot of nightmares. It's much easier than withdrawal from opiates. But everything I did was some miraculous accomplishment. It was one of the most exciting times in my life. I got my driver's license back. I got a car. I got my a job. I hadn't had a job in forever. And I just, life was fun. Life was exciting. I was definitely stunted emotionally. I was 20, I think I got clean right before my 28th birthday. It might've been 29th and, um, wore pigtails on top of my head for a minute. I think it was a minute before I came down enough to be like, Oh, I should stop doing this. And I ended up in meetings. I ended up going to meetings because my dad went to meetings. And I remember first he took me to, um, like AA and I, felt very uncomfortable. I had crippling social anxiety when I got clean. Like that's one thing that that changed about my personality 
somewhere in drug use that I was never like this before. I was so outgoing and so free and it was so easy for me to talk to people. And then I used drugs and I think just being outside of society or like hanging out with a different class of people, I disconnected from the society I was in and it was now excruciating to be around strangers. It was terrifying. And so I couldn't even speak. And it was just my heart racing and it was awful for a long time. And I remember he took me to AA and it was all just people who really had their shit together and it did not feel comfortable for me. And I remember somebody, so the thing is they say, hi, my name's Tom. And then everyone goes, hi, Tom, or hey, Tom. And uh, I just remember somebody saying Jude. Hi, my name's Jude. And everyone going, hey, Jude. And then just pissing myself, like having to leave the room laughing. But that was just all this pent up anxiety. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I need meetings. Like, I don't think I need this. And I remember at one point my dad took me to a bar because he had a like a pool game. And he asked me, like, is it hard for you to be in bars? And I remember thinking, like, oh, God, does he think I'm not going to drink? Because I was definitely planning on reincorporating alcohol at some point. I just was very particular about chemicals in my brain. Like, that seems crazy for someone who did meth. But even when I was on meth, I was very, like, I wouldn't do anything that was on the table. I didn't drink or smoke pot the entire time I was on meth. I think I drank one time at the end. But I was very, I do meth. That's it. I'm here for the speed. And I do things that are speed adjacent sometimes. In the beginning, I would do ecstasy or whatever. But, like, um, coming down off of meth is hard and I didn't want to do any downers. And so that's why I wasn't drinking, but I planned on drinking one day. And I remember feeling weird that he thought I wasn't going to drink because I thought, oh, this is going to be like an awkward conversation. Then he asked me if he can take me to an NA meeting and I say yes. And I go to my first NA meeting. Once again, social anxiety. These people look like my people though. And by that, I mean, you know, dirt bags. And then the first guy that shares is like, my fucking parole officer's all up on my fucking dick. And I felt so at home. I felt so with my people. I felt heard. I felt seen. And the social anxiety didn't exist. And so this was what made me decide to get involved in recovery because I felt home and I felt uh, social network. I don't know how else I would have made friends because I was so locked inside of myself. And then I get into the program and the steps are kind of a 101 for my spiritual beliefs. You know, I, I, I love the idea of taking inventory of your life and forgiving people and forgiving yourself and making amends. Like all of this really resonates. I loved all of that. And I didn't like the sharing part, oddly enough. I don't like to talk in public, and especially when the social anxiety was really bad. But I tore through the steps. I did everything I was supposed to do. I was the grossest version of myself during this era in my life because I was very insecure. I had a lot of self-doubt. I didn't feel spiritually enlightened. And at my worst, I am judgmental and gossipy. And I was all of that. Anytime you put me into an environment where there's just a clear set of rules, I will just excel at whatever it is and then immediately feel superior to everyone else. It's my worst uh, personality defect. I wouldn't say it's still 
a thing. It's also strange to go from like drinking your piss to feeling superior to someone else in like eight months. But that is, that's Jessa in a nutshell. That's, um, it takes me five minutes to believe that I am an expert about something. So from the beginning in recovery, I felt guilt. I don't know if guilt is the right word. I would listen to people talk about their experience with addiction and it didn't track with my experience. And I would hear them talk about trying to quit over and over and over again and like the desperation and the just like seeking an answer and fighting for their lives. And I would feel guilty because I was getting the same accolades. Like I was getting the same congratulations as them, but if I wanted to get high, I would have gotten high. I'm, I'm literally here, I'm literally clean because I got bored. I got distracted by life and lost interest. And I'm not fighting for my life. And I'm not gripping onto the chair. I'm just being very Jessa in that, you know, I can only pay attention to something till I feel like I've conquered it or understood it or experienced all it has to offer. And then I just move on. And I also heard other things in the program like, you're not unique and you might think that your experience is different, but it's not different. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. You know, this could just be my addiction talking. I heard about uh, you thinking that you're safe and you can go back and you can use. And and I really didn't want to though. That a lot of my thoughts were about if I wanted to use, I would use. Like there's no part of discipline. I am not using discipline at all. When I heard that I can't drink, I was like, oh, okay because alcohol is kind of garbage anyway. I don't give a fuck about alcohol. And I had, you know, already decided I didn't want to smoke pot anymore when I was like 20 because I loved it when I was a teenager and then it made me weird and paranoid as an adult. And so I just really didn't want to use. I knew like I can never moderate, you know, uh, use meth in moderation. I knew that about myself. And so I just had already, I had already decided never to do meth and I didn't really give a fuck about anything else. And so I was just kind of like, I'm not, I'm here for this, the social aspect, you know, I'm here for the community and I can't really relate to the other stuff. And people would ask my advice. I still ask my advice. Like, what do I do? My son, my friend, my husband's hooked on drugs. And my only advice is like, let them get done. Stop dragging people to interventions. Stop dragging them to rehab. Like, let them finish. And I think that's kind of coming from a place of privilege in that I, you know, wasn't on opiates. So uh, I guess people die of meth, but at a way slower rate. I guess now they're putting fentanyl and everything, so you can't do fucking anything. You might die. But opiates are uh, Russian roulette. It's a whole different ball game. But I don't know what other advice to give because I didn't, like, escape addiction. I just kind of strolled out of it. And my feelings, though, were... I'm not going to, this isn't going to hurt me, right? I'm not going to get too clean. I'm not going to get too recovered. Like who gives a fuck? It's, I like it here. I like the people here. I like the community. I don't really resonate with the difficulties that they had getting clean, but maybe I'm just super lucky. 
and I uh, I quit smoking cigarettes a year after I started, after I got clean. I guess it was like a year and a half. And same thing. I was just like, July 17th, I will smoke my last cigarette. And I smoked my last cigarette. Every cigarette sucked for that month, which helped. And then I smoked my last cigarette. And then I just kind of knew, like, as long as I don't ever smoke one more cigarette, I'll be fine. And I never smoked again. And I loved smoking. Smoking I loved. And it was like a last minute decision to quit. It was one of these things where everyone else was always trying to quit. And I was like, I don't get it. I like it. I stayed super active in recovery for like three months. Or sorry, three years. And then life kind of got busy. I got married. I got promoted at work. I uh, moved across the country. Just kind of stopped going to meetings. And about four years in... I had gotten certified as a hypnotist. Uh, there'll be a lot of those type of asides also. Um, and I was buying a business from a woman, uh, or I was interviewing to buy a business from a hypnotist. And I weirdly, back then, my whole identity was that I was an addict. It was everything to me. It was front and center. And I had managed to sit I hadn't even been to a meeting in a while, but this was still my whole who I was, my whole identity. And I was in this business meeting with this woman and I don't know, 30, 40 minutes passed. And then I said, I feel like I should let you know that I'm an addict. And she said, oh, I know. You wear it like a badge, like a name tag. And I don't understand why. And at this point, I had tapped more into my kind of spiritual beliefs that I had attained on drugs. And um, I don't know how she knew it, though, though, right? Like, I hadn't said anything. And I certainly, at this point, do not look like someone who did drugs. You know, you can't tell that they were dentures. And so I was like, what do you mean? And she said, it's just a strange thing. How long has it been since you got high? And I said, four years. And she said, don't you think it's strange to have your entire identity be something that you haven't done in four years? And I, it blew my fucking mind. And because for me, my beliefs are don't pay attention to things you don't want. So when something bad happens, I don't give it any power. I'm just like, okay, well, work around that. Like I don't make it, I would never make something I don't desire my identity. And here I was making my entire identity in this new great life that I've built. I have this fantastic life and I'm making it the theme of it, something that I was doing in my 20s. And it took me years to absorb that because I, I felt liberated by the idea. There was like a burden lifted, lifted off of me as soon as she said it. But then I got home and I started thinking, oh man, but like, what if that's just my addiction talking? Like, what if it's just doing push-ups in the background? And if I ditch that moniker and I ditch that identity, then I will forget that I can never do drugs and I will end up getting high again. And I remember laying in my bed and just going back and forth, back and forth. There was this fight within me that was like, you need to be true to who you are. You need to tell the truth about your experience. And there was a lot of like worrying what people would think. I didn't want to let my dad down. You know, we had a bond over the fact that we were both in recovery. My best friends were from recovery. I didn't know who I was without that. And I didn't want people to be mad at me. And I didn't want people to think I was going to just go out and, and get fucked up. And I... I remember researching on the internet and finding that there were a lot of people who move on, who just move on with their lives 
and uh, there are books about it. But at this point, I had never heard of these people. I thought that everyone that ever left meetings goes and becomes, you know, are they're dead in the street somewhere. And so this is uh, similar to like a faith crisis, I think, that some people have. And it was this really kind of having to step out and trust myself in this situation. And I was afraid, what if I'm being self-deceptive? What if I'm lying to myself? And so that took three years, which is so long in Jessa time, because uh, like six months is what two years is to the rest of you. Like three years, but that's how much I didn't give a fuck about getting high, like, or drinking. I did, there was no rush for me to get to a place where I could party. It was about who I am and being truthful about who I am and what my experience was. And so at seven years clean, I decided to no longer call myself an addict. And I remember having this, like taking my dad out to dinner and like having this conversation with my parents and they were like, and my husband at the time was on the same page. And so we were like, we don't believe we're addicts. I don't know if he would say something different now, but uh, we don't believe we're addicts. And so my dad was like trying to be cool, you know, and he was like, do you want to order a drink? And I was like, no, I don't think I want to drink. I just don't want, I don't want to pretend that I can't have a drink because I know for me, it's true that I could, I just don't want to. And I don't know if it's that I want credit for the fact that I don't want to, or I just want to live the truth for me, which is that I quit because I was bored. I quit because it ran its course and I think I'm fine. And so it was one of these things that's like super important moment in my life, but like just didn't make sense to anyone else. And for a year or so, everybody waited for me to drink and I just didn't. Every once in a while, I would think like tonight will be the night that I party. I'm going to get drunk in Atlantic City with my sisters. And then I would think, ugh, I'm just going to act like an idiot. And then the next day I'm going to have a hangover and or I could just like drink Red Bull and dance and have fun. So I just never wanted to. I did do mushrooms that year and uh, it was a blast. And at the end, I was like braced for a sudden desire to do something else. And instead, it was just like, man, mushrooms are cool. I like psychedelics. I think... They're uh, fun. And I pretty much kept this to myself because I felt like I do know a lot of people who can't do mushrooms. I do know a lot of people who, if they let themselves off of the addiction hook, they couldn't, they would drink immediately and they wouldn't be able to do it in moderation. And I, A, don't want to talk them into doing that. And B, I don't want to be like, um, I can do it. You can't do it. Like I don't, that sounds awful. So I just got quiet. I got really quiet on the subject. I was still doing a lot of like recovery comedy. So I just was like sober again for years. And then, um, I guess 2017. So at this point I'm like, 12 years since I quit doing meth, um, five years since I did psychedelics. I uh, start microdosing psychedelics. It really helped with my memory. It helped with depression, anxiety. It also helped with uh, like creative writing and stuff. And so I did it for like a month in the summer. I've done it one other time since that. And then I've like actually done acid a few times. And ultimately, I like to be sober. I think I enjoy to be, I enjoy being sober. I enjoy having control of every situation. I do 
believe for me, psychedelics provide a spiritual and psychological experience that I'm into. But uh, I'm also very interested in things like psychedelics for mental health stuff. And uh, ketamine now they're using for depression. This fucking toads jizz or not jizz. That would be gross. <laughs> What's the other stuff? Venom. It's one of the two. Venom or cum. Um, <laughs> what if I just got people drinking their piss and f- sucking off toads? <laughs> you heard it here first. For treating depression and stuff like this. Anyway, I'm super into that stuff and we will probably try to get a medical professional or some type of expert in to talk to us about that at some point. By us, I mean me. But um, I haven't known where I stand in this conversation because I feel like uh, my experience is unique and my experience isn't the norm. And I don't want to be an advocate for using. I don't want to be an advocate for people relapsing. Like, don't relapse. I don't want to talk people into doing something that works for me as if it's going to work for everyone because I don't think that it is. And I am fortunate that my experience with drugs was so easy to walk away from. And it was a huge part of my identity and it, and it's a, still a strange dichotomy for me because that's still my people. You know what I mean? There's still like I still consider myself an addict in that I had the same life experiences. Like it's different when you're out in the regular world and these people have never lived on the streets. They've never uh, done awful things to their bodies. They've never uh, watched their friend die in front of them. They've never uh, lost a million of their friends to overdoses. They've never been to jail they've you know they don't they don't know this language and so like i still am part of a big community of people who have done a shit ton of drugs and so in that respect i consider myself an addict i think i consider myself an addict anyway i think that there is a lot of gray area and that's what i learned when i finally put out the episode of the podcast that there are a lot of people who have a different story. They have a different story. They were fine. They could drink and smoke weed in moderation. They get in a car accident. Doctor puts them on pain pills. Now they're addicted to opioids. Uh, Doctor cuts them off from the pain pills. They end up banging heroin and then they get clean. They go to rehab. They get out. They're in recovery for a couple years and then they're able to go back to moderation, whatever. Their definition of moderation is, you know, drinking beers a couple times a month or something. I don't know. Um, But these people don't know where they're at in the conversation because they did have this transformative period in their lives where they were using, where they were consumed. And but then they were able to rejoin society after getting their shit together and kind of like regain their previous ability to do things in moderation. And so these are kind of the stories that I I want to get into. I want to share. I want to talk about different ways of recovering. I'm 100% pro 12-step abstinence recovery. I think you're not going to go wrong with that, right? Like if you just never use again your failure rate is zero. 
But I do think that there's a lot to talk about today, especially with the opioid crisis, especially with the fact that the pharmaceutical industry pumped this shit into our society to the point that everyone has been affected by an overdose at this point, right? And so I think it's time to have kind of a nuanced conversation about drugs, about addiction, about recovery. Uh, I also want to hear from people about how addiction has affected their lives. You know, their parents were addicts, their siblings were addicts. We're going to get into a lot of that kind of stuff. It's primarily going to be comedians. So we're going to have a lot of dark humor. And um, we're also going to talk about stuff that I'm passionate about. Harm reduction. They're doing a lot of like safe injection sites, which are very controversial. And I think it's fucking fantastic to say that if you don't, it was it was needle exchange when I was doing drugs. It was needle exchange when I was young, where people were like, if you give them needles, they're going to do more drugs. And I can tell you as someone who has used, who has put bleach in her own needle and, and used sandpaper to sharpen it, it's not stopping us from doing drugs anymore than condoms. You know, like, is the, it's the same stupid message as if you give them condoms, they're going to have sex. It's like, no, they're going to have safe sex. Like, that's it. You're not stopping teenagers from fucking by teaching them abstinence. And you're not stopping active addicts from using drugs by denying them a safe place to use drugs. I also want to talk about like this, this problem was started by the pharmaceutical industry. People are shitting on heroin addicts. Like there's a lot of uh, stigma around addiction. And for people like me, that's fine, right? Like I willingly went out and did drugs and I was a pariah in society. That's fine. But the amount of normal, functioning, happy, productive members of society that have had their ass handed to them by uh, these fucking pain pills and then became junkies is like, I can't wait to talk about that. I also like to talk shit on the justice system and the prison system and the difference in how we how we treated the crack epidemic versus how we treat the heroin epidemic. Now that we have uh, suburban white kids getting addicted to heroin, now all of a sudden it's a health crisis. I like talking about stuff like that. I do want to explore stuff like uh, psychedelics and talk about parenting and stuff to teach your kids uh, uh, drug education. I believe that my mom being a drug addict did benefit me greatly when I got out there and started doing drugs. Uh, Heroin was definitely offered to me several times, but my mom taught me that heroin was a life sentence and uh, that pot wasn't the same thing as pills. And I think I could do an entire episode on giving your kids an accurate drug education and making sure that you're not lumping in pot with harder drugs. Because if you tell them that pot and heroin are the same thing, then when they try pot and realize that you're not really uh, hip to what's happening, they're not going to trust you when it comes to heroin. So I think that's probably it for this episode. I feel like I just rambled for five hours? Was it five hours? One hour. Okay. Jesus Christ. This is really hard without a co-host. Um, hope that wasn't too boring. Uh, coming up in the next few weeks, we got interviews with uh, so many amazing comedians 
and our Twitter and Instagram should be up. Send me messages. Tell me things you want to talk to, uh, hear us talking about, uh, people you'd like to hear on the podcast if you know of comedians that are addicts in any phase of recovery. And um, I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs>